Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den indiske historiker og forfatter Ravinda Kaur. Hun har skrevet en helt vidunderlig bog, som hedder Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Design in 21st Century India. I bogen fortæller Ravinda den store historie om, hvordan Indien efter 2. verdenskrig var knudepunkt for det globale syd, hvordan Indien under Javaralal Nehru havde en drøm om en postkolonial tredje standpunkt mellem kommunismen i Sovjetunionen og kapitalismen i vest, og hvordan de forestillede sig, at de kunne udvikle en helt ny politisk økonomi. Og så frem til i dag, hvor Narendra Modi står i spidsen for et land, som er drevet af en helt enorm økonomisk vækst, en fantastisk nationsopbygning og nogle meget skræmmende nationalistiske politikker. Ravinder fortæller i bogen både den store historie, de store idéer og de politiske brydninger, som har ført frem til det Indien, vi kender i dag. Hun fortæller også om, hvordan man skal forstå Indien i konkurrencen mellem USA og Kina. Og for dem, der lytter med hele vejen, kan I til sidst høre, hvorfor det er, at sejrherren ifølge Ravinder Kaur i den globale magtkamp mellem Kina og USA meget vel kan gå hen og blive Indien. Dette er blot endnu et argument for at forstå det meget store, meget omtalte og ofte meget misforståede projekt, som er Narendra Modi's. Well, good to see you and thank you for talking to us. I want to thank you first for Brand New Nation. It's a wonderful read and it's a book that explains a lot of things that I've been thinking about and couldn't understand both when it comes to India, but also when it comes to capitalism and cultural traditionalism here in the West. And I see it as a book about both at the same time. I was struck when I read the book by the combination of, on the one hand, you have some of the leftist thinkers that I grew up with, uh, Walter Benjamin, Guy Debord, uh, Herbert Marcuse. And then on the other hand, there's some very interesting empirical research. And it made me wonder about your intellectual trajectory What what inspired you originally to go into academia? I think it's a bit of an accident. I think I was trying to avoid getting married. <laughs> so I just, uh, you know, went from one degree to another. Uh, you know, I'm educated in India. And um, at some point, my family was asking me, so when do you want to get married? And I was like, no, no, I have to complete my degree. So I think it was almost like an accidental thing. I did get married, uh, but then I moved to Denmark. Uh, my husband is Danish, and uh, which uh, basically means that uh, I actually had to give up, you know, a lot of things in India and to restart all over again. Uh, I wanted to be an investigative journalist. I never did that. So I think, but that has also entered the way I do my research. Namely, I go after the question rather than honing disciplines. So I'm pretty indisciplined in the way I work. So. I work across history, uh, international politics, and anthropology, and I think this kind of indiscipline is what took me in in what you know seemingly are disconnected things that you can you know go from uh, Delhi, New York to Davos and make a full circle, you know, of uh, you know from decolonization theories to Walter Benjamin and back and forth. And I think it adds to the charm of the book that you manage to mirror the complexity because you have so many different ways of accessing it. Also, I imagine when I read the book that it must have been uh, quite an existential exercise because this is about a 
huge transformation in the country that you grew up with politically, culturally, and um, and economically. And I imagine that you must that you must be emotionally invested in in these topics at all because they are big transformations. Why, why did you want to write the book originally? I think I was tremendously fascinated by the change we were witnessing because uh, you know my first book was about uh, you know India's partition, uh, British India, which became India and Pakistan. And while I was revising my book manuscript, I began saying that you know things I'm writing about they're already undergoing a transformation. Namely, you know, there were colorful, uh, you know, campaigns being launched in India, where India was being reimagined in a new way. India had kind of opened up. I mean, I've grown up in Delhi. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, in 1970s, as you know, things like just to take Coca-Cola as an example that had been thrown out as uh, as part of the nationalism, nationalization drive. And now Coca-Cola was back. McDonald's was back, you know, so many of us young people was were queuing up outside McDonald's just to see how does, you know, a, an American fast food uh, really look like, which also all of these small things uh, also meant that we were being asked to reimagine what it meant to be uh, an Indian uh, or to be in India, namely that you grow up, uh, you know, thinking of yourself as a post-colonial citizen you know, part of the post-colony. But now people were speaking about India in a different way. It was being spoken of as uh, an emerging market. Uh, we were speaking about hope, growth, optimism. It was a different kind of language uh, that we were um, using. So what I basically did was that um, this fascination just took me. I began chasing images. The mass campaigns from Incredible India to India Shining, which were being launched in India, and those images literally took me, uh, you know, to many places within India and outside to see how this country was being transformed. And one another thing that was very interesting for me reading the book is that the transformation that you describe is also a transformation away from the picture many of us have of India that mm. we were we were taught in school about Jawaharlal Nehru's promise. Of uh, of India as as uh, a moral as claiming a moral political position in the new world, being neither to to the west or the east or communist or capitalist, but imagining a new political economy, not just about decolonization, but also making a better world. Actually, and you describe in the book how this image of new India that we associate a lot of positive values with here in Denmark came to be seen as a failure in India. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is a huge history that I asked you to summarize very briefly. But but I, I'm curious why we're seen as a failure. So it's not I who was seeing it as failure, but many people begin describing uh, that earlier new India, which was being inaugurated in 1947 as some sort of, you know, something which had fallen short of expectations. What it means is that uh, right from the beginning, India, you know, uh, the idea that India had a great destiny as a great nation in, on the world in the scheme of uh, world politics, uh, that somehow it had not achieved that potential it was meant to. So there's a great discussion which is going on in 1990s. And many people, uh, you know, there is, of course, a great divide here uh, where some people begin challenging, you know, what they saw as the socialist past of India, which had held back India's potential. 
or it had caged India or not allowed it to unleash its entrepreneurial uh, spirit. Um, so government was seen as the problem. So in a way, it uh, it uh, coheres with what was going in other parts of the world also, namely the end of history, the liberal triumphalism. And of course, India, there was a lot of pushback towards these ideas. But this, these, this idea that India has been held back actually became popular within the middle class elite. And, um, and that is what eventually, it's part of the story of how India opened up uh, in the 1990s. And, and with that comes another way of describing a transformation that you describe very eloquently in the book from what you call nation building to nation branding. And a, lo a lot of the book are, are these wonderful readings of examples of nation branding from popular figures to, to advertising campaigns to country branding in Davos. Can you tell a little bit about this passage from nation building to nation branding? I think what I am talking about this is transformation which is taking place within the nation form. That nation form is more uh, you know, being altered into a commodity form as a thing, a product which can be put up in the global market. And I think this uh, this is part of this grand sweep which is going on in the post-communist, post-colonial world, uh, where nations are being, um, uh, you know, asked to uh, fulfill their potential. For instance, and I think this is connected with, for instance, you know, Tony Blair's, uh, you know, government was very actively involved in some of these think tanks, which were writing, uh, you know, little reports. One influential report was that let's reimagine nations, you know, countries are also companies. And it was actually, uh, you know, a student of Hobsbawm, who's, uh, who becomes an advertising guru, who writes um, this policy paper, uh, you know, telling um, his audience that, look, Companies, corporations are, you know, collectives of people, organization, likewise, nation too is, you know, an imagined community. And just imagine how, uh, you know, uh, some of those established ideas of nation making are brought together. But to say, well, nations can be run as companies too. And this, this prescription was being sold around, you know. And this is where you begin to see a different kind of language begins to appear. Because I just want to make sure this is not just an India story. This is a wider story than that. Uh, so the, the language which comes into being where you begin to reimagine territory as a natural, you know, like a resource which can be, um, uh, you know, mined. Or, um, you know, you begin to think about citizens as demographic dividend or human capital. Uh, or for that matter, you know, cultural identity, culture, um, cultural essence as something which can be turned into uh, a commodity as well, namely brand. So the, the shaping up of identity politics into identity economy, that is, that is the shift which begins taking place in 1990s. And one of the hallmarks of such a shift also is, uh, you know, the enhanced competitiveness competitiveness, not just outside, uh, you know, with other nations, uh, like in seeking foreign investments or technology, etc. But it is also internal competitiveness. Now, imagine India is a huge country with, uh, with so many different regions where regions itself begin to compete with one another in seeking foreign capital. Uh, so I think this, this would be the idea that I'm talking about from, um, you know, nation building, which is an old story, uh, the shift into nation branding, where, uh, you know, 
what I call infrastructures of mass publicity also mm -hmm. become you know, a prominent feature of how we conduct politics or how we uh, you know, create a brand. Perhaps this is why I would say that image, something which is so fluid, something which is difficult to grasp, also becomes uh, you know, uh, the domain where a lot of conflicts begin to take place. That how do we enhance the image of the nation or for matter, what does it even mean to be citizen of a nation, you know, nation turned market, uh, where the expectation from citizens also is that you add value to the nation by speaking well of it, for instance. I was thinking of Cool Britannia, the Tony Blair campaign, when I read your book, because I remember it very clearly, this whole new way of reimagining an old country like England at, at, at the time. But I was also wondering, because, you know, we have these in our little country here. We know these nation, national branding campaigns as well. And I, th I, I think we experience them as something superficial when they take place. We think, you know, there, there's, there are people in the Secretary of State who make these campaigns and they ally with someone from the business elite. But then when you look back 20 years later, you can see that there were actually, they were correlated with political rationales, ways of governing, ways of running the educational system. So afterwards, you found out that, that actually something did change. How how deep rooted were, were these companions in Indian society and how were they rooted? I think first uh, you would say, you know, the quest for good times is nothing new that has actually propelled many societies around the world. If I may mention, there is something about Denmark also where there was a slogan called Go to the Blia Bella. Yes. And that is also part of the story. Or for that matter, Soviet Union also had this, you know, mass image campaigns where the socialist life, you know, uh, was a means to gain that prosperity and progress for humankind. So the difference between uh, those ideas and this turn of the century uh, idea of good times is that it is no longer the socialist uh, model or values but rather it is capitalism, which is, you know, which is the vehicle which will take you to that promised land. So I think if I may tell you a funny story that uh, one of the launch campaigns in Davos, um, you know, of um, uh, the India story, as it is called, uh, was happening in the same premises where Britain is great. Cool Britannia was being launched on the other side by David Cameron. So in a way, it was quite a telling thing that uh, you know the old imperial metropole and the post colony in the same premises are both launching themselves into the world economy you know so i mean i think it was a, if we were to just take this snapshot and see how yes. this had actually come a full circle in an unexpected way there's a specific campaign that that you write about in the book called india shining which at the time was not considered a success and it it uh, I'm not sure how to put it this exactly but but it, you could say that it led to the electoral defeat of the BJP party uh, afterwards and there was like it this campaign was too much or it wasn't trustworthy but you you write in the book that actually it had huge significance anyway can you tell a little bit about this campaign now this is nearly 10 years ago that campaign was launched and that was uh, what is remembered as India's arrival on the global stage. 
that uh, you know economic reforms uh, you know the, they had sort of kicked in growth was just booming and this campaign was primarily launched for not for the outside world but for the indian citizens internal campaign to basically say look folks we are doing very well take pride in it invest in your own economy invest in your own country and for the first 6 months actually it was very successful campaign and they had this amazing images of a modern new india you know uh, that you could be part of that too and this is what i call the icons of good times they were extremely popular and influential so influential that bjp actually decided to take india shining as part of their electoral campaign uh, you know elections were just around the corner but it so happened that uh, bjp lost elections and then many commentators at that point said that well these were the icons of good times but they were you know it was an empty dream it was a shell so the electorate has you know given the verdict that uh, you know that it didn't cut eyes with them but we, it is only a few years later basically we begin making sense of this you know that uh, basically those images of good times were being held to account for the failure but what had really happened was that uh, government may have lost but what had won was the idea that it is only more and more neoliberal economic reforms you know which would uh, pave the way for india's destiny because congress party which was the opposition party at that time it had a counter campaign saying aam aadmi ko kya mila which means what did the common man get out of it in other words it was a different kind of logic at play which is like yeah india is growing but where's my share in it so you see it's a it's a different kind of pact which is being made between the state and the citizen and this is this is how we can understand that actually uh, much later uh, you know uh, uh, that when narendra modi comes back to power uh, and his uh, slogan uh, you know also uh, is basically acche din which literally means good times but there's a very very interesting and i never thought of it before i read your book but i think it's the same in 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 other countries there's a very interesting part of the book where describe the failure of government and how the distrust of of government works because i never understood why for some people who are not very well off that they think that the market and capitalism can be more just than democratic society i know this reveals my bias and privilege uh, as well but this failure of government and this this distrust is very closely connected to these neoliberal reforms they're part of the same political context it's a very very interesting part of the book can you explain how this this understanding of failure of government and distrust of government arose yeah this is actually a very fascinating chapter uh, in india's history because um, there was a large scale anti corruption movement uh, which started brewing up you know after 2008 9 and you know 2011 and this is also the time when india's economy was really doing very well in in its entire if you take the long arc of india's economy this was really the high point it was near double digit uh, economic growth and it was almost about to take overtake china at that point so india was being celebrated as the one half of the you know asian uh, you know giant miracle uh, and at that time the anxiety is that why aren't we going growing fast enough 
Why aren't we overtaking China? Why are we still lagging behind? So there was this impatience that we need to move ahead and very fast, which is ironical because India was actually doing very well. And at that time, a uh, lot of this analysis, commentariat, you know, began speaking about corruption. Corruption became the thing that, well, you see, if only you know, those leakages, slippages uh, that corruption entails would not happen, uh, then we would be actually overtaking China. And that actually started building up, you know, common citizen, uh, you know, plank. And of course, it was um, massively pushed by, uh, you know, the corporate world, Times of India, which is India's largest paper, and actually the world's largest English language paper as well, uh, that actually came up with this uh, campaign called Lead India, and which became a televised uh, reality show, uh, which uh, the basic premise was that uh, our politicians have failed us. We need to come forward, that it is citizens' duty, that we need to come forward. So it was a reality show where people would continue getting eliminated. You had to put you know, proposals forward uh, each week. And ultimately, there was someone um, you know, who was the winner who had a plan to reform India. It's a different story as to what happened uh, to that man. Uh, uh, but, but this is the general um, you know, push that we need to um, uh, you know, move um, faster. Eventually, this is the plank of anti-corruption or the making of the Aadmi as a political subject. There is also something which, uh, you know, the Modi government, I mean, uh, you know, when Modi was going to fight elections, that they uh, harnessed that into their campaign as well. So I think it is that bubbling. And here, I think what is interesting is the ways in which government came to be seen as a crux of corruption. And partly one part of the story I'm tracing is about the caste question. Yes, because that's very, very interesting. How? Please explain that. Because, we, you know, it's been celebrated a lot here, actually, that there was this effort to uh, re to integrate low caste into the electoral policies of India as a way of, of um, yeah, obtaining some, some kind of political equality, of course. But this has another story as well. Yeah, and in 1990s was a very, very productive moment uh, and disrupted disruptive moment in India, India's political history. And this is where, uh, you know, caste uh, question is opened up and more um, affirmative action is made available to other backward classes, OBC groups as well. And uh, which basically meant that many, uh, you know, when seats were reserved in educational and government institutions, uh, many upwardly mobile upper class, upper caste people, they, you know, there was this counter movement you know, saying that, um, you know, that this is uh, this is against equality and that, uh, you know, government is, uh, you know, that government needs to be a place of merit. So the whole debate became merit versus quota, where merit was, you know, truly people who deserved or they were, uh, you know, bright enough, brilliant, skillful people versus quota, meaning people who had come through the affirmative action. Um, and government became the crux of that because private sector would not uh, entail, you know, affirmative action at all. So which basically meant that in the eyes of many, uh, you know, activists also, you know, uh, youth for equality was one such movement, for example, that government became the place, uh, the space uh, where a lot of uh, 
you know, corruption is taking place. So I think this is the 90s and, uh, you know, and those quarter centuries of uh, upheaval, political economic, which is taking place, which also realigns how politics plays out in India. And, and just to get some, some more clarification on this, so it's obvious that you always have this campaign from the business classes saying, well, well, democracy, it's not for competence, it's for anybody who, who's, who's being elected. This is not a place where we have the best people. We have the best people in, in, the, in the business world. And then, of course, you also have the old Plato critique of, of uh, democracy, that this is not for the wise people. All the stupid people get to have a say there, so society will be more stupid and, and, and less competent. So we know this critique from, from the philosophers and from the business elite, but how was this conceived by the popular classes in India, by the working class and by people in the countryside? Were they seeing that government is becoming a place of not of meritocracy, but of non-incompetent people? Or were they saying, we don't want the business life to dictate our politics? No, obviously, I mean, this this is a, this uh, this campaign has been very much been driven by, uh, you know, upper caste youth. As I said, Youth for Equality was one such group. And, um, you know, the the people who have been sort of left behind, you know, in socioeconomic terms, uh, you know, caste groups, they, of course, do not obviously don't believe that. And right now, actually, a burning issue in Indian politics um, right now is about caste census, that when, uh, you know, when you count, enumerate the population, which happens every decade, um, it has happened since 1881, uh, that should you have caste as a factor or not? And this is a very important thing. Uh, why? Because the moment you begin counting caste, you can see, uh, you know, the groups, you know, how big are those population groups, because that also lays out how, uh, you know, um, higher castes or the privileged castes, how they have a greater share of resources and greater share of uh, institutions. So I think this, so this is, um, this is a vexing issue um, at the moment. And there's a character in the book that I must admit that I was not familiar with, but sounds very interesting. Am Atmi, I'm not pronouncing it uh, correctly, which is very, this is such an interesting character. And, and the transformation of this character is part of this political history as well. Could you tell us first about what kind of public character Atmi is? So Am Atmi simply means the common man. And the common man, um, actually, it, it begins its journey as a cartoon character. Times of India, uh, for half a century, had this column, you know, cartoon column by this famous cartoonist called R.K. Lakshman. So common man every day would appear and this figure would be the bystander, the one who is observing, you know, the fate of the nation, the ways in which basically politicians are, um, you know, taking citizens for a ride. So that used to be the theme of those cartoons. And he was very, very popular. What is amazing about this movement, which came to be called the Aam Atmi, you know, where people started saying in the anti-corruption movement that I am the common man, that you see this very familiar, popular figure is almost jumping out you know, from the sidelines of history and becomes an action figure where it's, it is no longer content to watch, observe and make sarcastic, you know, uh, remarks, but actually ready to take up the battle with the government, with the politicians. 
it immediately struck a chord, uh, you know, with a with a very wide population because Amatmi is a very very known concept. Of course, many people have remarked that people who were calling themselves Aam Aadmi or common man, they were hardly common at all because this is literally the middle class or the elite of the nation uh, who is, uh, you know, who is taking up cudgels against uh, the government, which they see as lacking meritocracy, right? So, um, uh, so it is anything but ordinary. But nevertheless, the moment you talk about the common man, ordinary, then you imagine a less powerful figure, you know, a marginal figure. But that is what also makes it, um, you know, a, a stronger political subject. So this is how in the last 10 years, actually, Delhi, which is both the state as well as the capital city of India, uh, came to be ruled by uh, a political party called Ahmadmi Party. And, and how does this character of the of the common man who changes from being a bystander to being a political subject. How, 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 how do you build a party on that? Yeah, that was a very interesting uh, phase because um, uh, as we talked before, that uh, much of the anti-corruption movement was uh, not just against politicians, but also against polit politics as such. So often activists, they would define themselves as apolitical people, people who were, uh, you know, beyond politics, people who were not interested in, because politics was equal to corruption. So there is this debate that should you really, in order to make change, can you remain outside politics or should you jump into politics? This is where a lot of splits begin taking place in that movement also. And one faction goes on to actually create a party called Ahmadmi Party. And uh, it has been, uh, you know, it was voted, uh, you know, uh, in Delhi, but also Punjab in northern India. So actually, it uh, did become a political force. And it, uh, it did lead to this kind of acknowledgement that you cannot bring uh, change outside the crux of politics. It seems that these different movements that we've been talking about, these transformations of India, reading your book, it feels almost like Narendra Modi was destined to come, that this is like preparing the landscape for, for him. And, and you call him the brand Modi, or you say this is the, the brand Modi. Could you explain how this prepared the arrival of, of the brand Modi and what, what it came to stand for? You see, one thing, uh, as a historian, I'm extremely cautious about is having this teleological view of history where everything seems to, you know, like falling into, you know, in this perfect yeah. sequence. Obviously, we know it didn't have to be like this. But what is important in this is that um, BJP, which has a longer history as a political party, but we also know it has not always uh, you know, been at the center of politics. You know, it it did form a government uh, in late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, but it was not uh, a very strong uh, majority also. And this is partly because you know, BJP, which holds on to a traditional conservative view um, uh, of how India should be, uh, it was quite against, uh, you know, the liberal, neoliberal economic reforms. And it was the Congress party, which was the original party of reform. So this was the dividing line. But with Narendra Modi, uh, it became um, uh, different, meaning that these two seemingly different domains were brought together. 
Uh, already in 2003, uh, Gujarat, uh, the state uh, that Narendra Modi comes from, began hosting an investment summit called Vibrant Gujarat. And the language of um, you know, tradition was brought together with global capital or the you know, civilizational uh, values together with you know, uh, high-tech capital-oriented uh, industry. So I think it is only by bringing these two worlds together that you are not only activating your core supporters, which are who are going to vote for you no matter what, but also bring in those who uh, are uh, less ideologically motivated, but more, uh, you know, in terms of uh, growth uh, and India's mobility. So I think it is coming together is what, uh, you know, brought uh, brand Modi or the promise, as I said, of Achedin that India finally will go where it was always destined to. But as you mentioned near the end of the book, this is always kind of a, a great disappointment for those who believed in the political and economic liberalism coming together. This is historically, it's surprising for many that this alliance or coalition between cultural traditionalism and the hype modern capitalism, that they can come together. How could it be explained that this very strange alliance, for me, historically strange alliance, but now we see it like everywhere. It's one expression of it, but we see it in Turkey as well, we see it in America as well. Actually, we see part of it in Denmark as uh, as as well. In your book, it's also a major uh, history of political ideas over the last 30 years. Could you tell us a little bit about this paradox of liberalism? I think those of us who have you know grown up in 1990s in in the age of globalization, you know, the term was yes that the world was in constant movement. Everything was flowing, connecting, you know, so there was nothing which was being stopped at all. So it was a very different kind of world which was being etched. And the kind of promise that also brought was that uh, liberal democracy and uh, liberal economics, they go hand in hand. And once countries begin opening up their borders to global finance, uh, global tech, uh, that would also entail strengthening, deepening, or kickstarting democratic traditions. But what we did witness was that something else was taking place. And this is where I think we need to look through frame of branding, which I'm suggesting. Branding literally is about the corporate entity of the nation, where nation is being reimagined as a place of production and exchange a place where uh, you know citizens have to be you know put to work in in certain ways and the very expectation or the pact the state and citizens have are of a different order in other words like it's no longer just this 19th century imagination of the nation and romance but literally uh, the 21st century uh, you know nation form that we are witnessing that citizens have to perform certain kind of duties here that is enhancing economic values, which also means that uh, the very essence of democracy, as you know, is dissent. The dissent is something which also continues to you know, shrink because you cannot uh, erode or uh, like corrode the brand value of the nation. You see the connection here that you need to have control over image over 
you know, what is said or talked about the brand so as not to corrode it. And it is very antithetical to the very idea of democracy, which inherently entails dissent. So I think this is where you begin seeing paradoxes developing. And at the same time, you also see that uh, once you have, uh, you know, capital, you can also demand that people uh, recognize, you know, cultural essence of the nation uh, as well. So it, it is a pact which, uh, which had not been foreseen in the 1990s, mm-hmm. was uh, evolving even when we were celebrating a multicultural, cosmopolitan, globalized world. Yeah, I want to hear near the end, I want to ask you a few questions about India currently, because there are some issues. One thing that I was wondering when I read your book was this old new India or Jawaharlal Nehru's uh, non-aligned position was also something that we admired a lot. And I've been wondering, looking at India's positioning itself uh, with regards to the war in, in Ukraine, whether this is the same progressive non-aligned position of Nehru or whether this is a new geopolitical position that just looks the same. I don't know if I put the answer clearly. Is, is it the same non-aligned position or is it changed? I think what is fascinating is that uh, there is a certain kind of uh, continuity in India's foreign policy positioning. And uh, in 1950s, 60s, it was uh, labeled as non-alignment. But interesting thing is that uh, often government of India actually does not use the term non-alignment at all. I have not come across um, as government officials talking about this, but it is often uh, outside commentators who use this term because it seems like a befitting thing, that it seems like a continuity from 1950s uh, until now. But it isn't uh, in the sense that, um, uh, you know, the term which, um, you know, often is used is, uh, you know, strategic autonomy or the quest for multipolarity. And it is also, it is a more transactional kind of engagement uh, with the world um, where you are part of multiple, uh, you know, alignments. And uh, so it is not non-alignment in that sense, but it is being part of multiple alignments at the same time, or increasingly what people have started calling mini-lateralism. It is no longer just multilateralism, but it is you know multiple kind of uh, uh, groups which are which are popping up. So what is different between 1950s and now is that those movements arose out of the anti-colonial. Uh, you know, very strong anti-colonial movements. Um, and uh, and where, for example, anti-apartheid or, you know, uh, Palestine was a strong cause for, uh, for many of these uh, formations at that time. But uh, the focus in this current phase has more and more moved to, uh, you know, uh, the economic domain, as well as, uh, you know, demanding an equal share in the global power politics. It wasn't like it wasn't there before, but I think it is very more pronounced, The also the transactionality of the engagement. Do you see conflicts arising between the focus on economic performance, this understanding of being a, a part of the success in the capitalist economy, and then the cultural traditionalism. Uh, I, I was thinking of it with this conflict with Canada at the, the moment that India's pushback is really forceful. And it's, it's, it's all, you know, you some of the things that are being said and kicking out 
Canadian diplomats for against the, these allegations. You know, this doesn't seem like the smooth business running country. This doesn't seem like the the global capitalist success. But 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 maybe it's just the way of of, of playing the game. How, how do you see this? I think it's very fascinating that how Indo-Canadian, you know, bilateral relations are, uh, you know, disturbed, but pretty much everything else remains undisturbed. And I think that is where uh, we need to make a delineation also that uh, I think most commentators have been looking at what the U.S. would do or say. Yes. And they are basically, I would say, U.S. chose to be non-aligned in this um, this <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, between India and Canada, that Canada is their neighbor and a great ally. But at the same time, India is a country that they are wooing for multiple reasons, primarily seen through the prism of containing China. So, so in this uh, way, I would say that uh, India is certainly, uh, you know, becoming more forceful. Uh, but we must not forget that uh, it's pretty much, um, you know, India has had this kind of, uh, you know, foreign policy responses. Actually, it is not entirely surprising that it would act like this. But what is interesting is how, uh, you know, countries like the U.S. have been responding to it. Yes, they, they've been sort of not, not responding very, very discreetly. I think Joe Biden said that he was saying something behind closed doors. Uh, my last question also relates to this is that in this conflict between China and the U.S. that is part of the new world order, and one of the defining features of, of the new world order, will India remain kind of neutral in this order? They have strong adversity against China, and it's obvious that America is pushing very hard to, to make India an ally here. And that's also plays into, of course, why they didn't respond to the Canada. How do you think this conflict between the US and China, India as a growing economy, how will that change India's position in the world? You mean in terms of uh, China? Yes. I think India probably is the uh, you know biggest winner in this geopolitical shifts which have been going on, especially since the pandemic. Uh, and then the Ukraine war, because as you know, the world was sort of already, uh, you know, turning away after the pandemic, uh, you know, from China, primarily the realization that, uh, you know, that you need to diversify or decouple. These are the terms used or yes. you know, many countries started making these plans for uh, China plus one. Uh, you know, kind of arrangement where you do not uh, just put all the eggs in one basket, but sort of spread it over. So India, obviously, we must remember that India is the only country in the world which uh, which equals China in terms of scale and size. And um, it just so happens that these two countries lie side by side and that geography actually also decides the ways in which Uh, you know, the the kind of political betting is going on, hedging the bets. And uh, India, a lot of people talk about India being in the sweet spot. And in reality, India doesn't have to do much. Just the way it is located. Also, um, you know, both in time and space, I would say that it is um, allowing it to make the most of um, like, without trying too hard. Well, thank you very much for your time. I think it's a beautiful place to end. Uh, thank you so much, Arvind. It was a pleasure talking to you. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Det var min samtale med Ravinda Kaur, som til daglig er professor på Københavns Universitet, så det er faktisk en verdensstjerne, vi har her i byen. Bogen hedder Brand New Nation, og jeg kan varmt anbefale, at man bestiller den hjem hos den boghandler, hvor man plejer at købe sine bøger. Så kan man både støtte sin lokale boghandel, sørge for, at den intellektuelle infrastruktur i Danmark forbliver intakt, og man kan lære en hel masse om Indien, som både minder meget om vores egen vestlige kapitalismes udvikling og adskiller sig enormt meget fra det. Den her samtale var produceret af vores gode kammerat og højkompetente hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi tale med en gigant i den europæiske kapitalismekritik, den forhandværende græske finansminister Janis Varoufakis, som har udgivet en ny bog, der hedder Techno-Feudalism. Janis pointe er, at kapitalismens tid er forbi, men det, der kom i stedet for kapitalismen, var på ingen måde bedre. Det viser sig faktisk at være værre. Heldigvis har vi en lang kritisk historie for at forstå, håndtere og kultivere den slags. Så vi får både kigget bagsted lige i øjnene og får udviklet vores kritiske redskaber til at tæmme det. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak for, at I lyttede med.